I knew somebody that was connected with the CEO of Foundation. I didn't know anybody at Super Rare, so I reached out to the CEO of Foundation, Kayvon, when they were just starting to accept artists on the platform. This was in January of 2021. January, February 2021. And, um, and I got an invite and I posted my first NFT and I sold it. And there was a big light bulb for me. And I was like, fuck, this is something's happening here because I'd heard about NFTs before, but now it's happening again. And I think in technology markets in general, like a lot of things happen once and don't happen again, but if they happen two times, they're probably going to happen three, four, five. And so I felt that pretty strongly and I went hard after the opportunity beyond just me as an artist. I thought, fuck, like this could be just a way to bring people together. Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome to the conversation. How's everybody doing today? How are you getting through the winter? And I'm not talking about the amazing amount of rain and snow we've got in California or the ice storms in Texas or the typically frigid Chicago winter. I'm talking about the crypto winter. It's bad. But as we wrote about in our newsletter last week, uh, I'm starting to pick up on some green shoots. There's definitely a level of optimism that uh, has not been present since uh, at least mid-2022. So that is all uh, cause for a little bit of joy. And if you're in this now and listening here, you're probably, I'm going to bet in this for the right reasons. And don't forget, it's all about timing. And speaking of timing, uh, on the show today, I have Seth Goldstein, who is the founder of Bright Moments, which is an in real life NFT gallery that started in Venice Beach, California, uh, in the uh, height of the COVID pandemic. And the brilliant idea that Seth and his co-founders had uh, in Bright Moments was getting people to actually come to the gallery in person. Um, they started giving away free NFTs called Crypto Venetians, which were pixelated art um, of uh, you know some local Venice characters and just sort of like, it was all generative, so you didn't know what you were gonna get. Um, and they started giving these away. And the only catch was you had to come to the Bright Moments Gallery uh, in Venice and get your uh, NFT there in person. The timing here couldn't have been better. And uh, as the NFT craze was picking up steam, uh, some of the crypto Venetians were selling uh, for $25,000 in secondary markets. So um, basically, Seth and his crew were giving these things away for free, and then people could turn around and sell them for tens of thousands of dollars, which uh, obviously created quite a stir. One really interesting facet here with Bright Moments is that uh, they got hacked uh, by an insider who they had trusted, and we get into this in the conversation a little bit. And it was a real turning point um, for Bright Moments and for everybody involved. Um, it wasn't just a theft, it was very emotional for everyone. It's, it felt like they had been stabbed in the back. And I wrote um, a three-part series on this called The Betrayal, the Betrayal of Bright Moments, um, which you can check out. Uh, I'll put the links to it in the show notes. Um, that was on Decentral back in uh, late 2021, I think. So. Anyway, Seth and everyone involved with Bright Moments has gone on to do amazing things. They are in the midst of a world tour. 
where they are going to 10 different cities around the world and opening galleries and minting in real life for people. They After Venice, they went to New York, then they went to London, they've gone to Berlin and Mexico City, and next on their whirlwind tour is Tokyo. Uh, they've got a few more cities after that, and they're going to end it all in Venice, Italy. So it's from Venice Beach, California to Venice, Italy. If you have the chance to go to any of these events and see these uh, mints in real life, I highly recommend it. It's uh, You wouldn't imagine how emotional and cool and just unexpected it can be. So I've been to a few of them. And again, if you have the means, I highly recommend it. So with all that out of the way, let's get to the conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks a lot. So, you know, you never uh, have struck me as a a finance guy, but I know you had some experience in finance. You, you seem to me uh, to be an artist kind of through and through. And I was wondering, was that how you started? And maybe finance was something or, you know, sort of like a more traditional job path was something that you wanted to do? Because I know for myself, I always wanted to be a writer, but I went like the medical school route and, you know, my parents were pushing me in that direction and I liked, you know, I liked biology, I liked science and all that stuff. But I'll tell you, um, when I was trying to get into med school, one of the things I did to, you know, volunteer was I, I used to go see autopsies at the morgue in Santa Barbara. And once you've seen a couple dead bodies cut open, you know, I'm like, I can't do that. Like I no no medical school for me. So um, that really helped kind of like, you know, push me towards being a writer and then eventually becoming a reporter. So I was wondering, you know, uh, you just seem like an artist first and foremost to me, but did you sort of go down a different path early in your life um, and then came back around to to what you ended up doing in art and, and photography and, and all the NFT stuff that we're going to talk about? Yeah, so I never considered myself an artist because my mom and my brother were both artists. And they were like they could they could draw anything. Okay. And I didn't have that kind of like that talent. Uh, but I was always interested in theater as a kid and in performance and in um kind of, you know like ha happenings and um, avant garde theater and uh, all those kind of aesthetics that that came out of it. Right, so I wanted to be an act. I was like a child actor, and I um, uh, I acted in the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is right by Harvard. Oh, wow. And um, I was like the child actor when I was growing up, because I lived in Newton, and I was like twelve, I think, when I started. So from like twelve to seventeen, I played all the the boy roles in Waiting for Godot, in um, Caucasian Chalk Circle, and Robert Wilson plays. Um, but so like that was my art, you know, growing up, um, my mom and my brother were like artist artists. And so I never like identified as a painter or as a photographer or anything like that. I was always really creative and I was always really artistic. Um, I felt, and I went to Columbia undergrad to study comp lit, um, and dramatic literature because I wanted to be in New York city and I wanted to, um, kind of have a broad liberal arts education. I didn't want to specialize too soon. Um, and coming out of that, 
I was really happy to be in New York City, and I was an archivist for Robert Wilson, who's a theater and opera director. And you know, long story short, like we did, he did Einstein on the Beach with Philip Glass in 1976, which is a really important kind of watershed in avant-garde opera and um, and the New York avant-garde of the 70s and 80s. And I was his archivist coming out of school. And then last year when we went to Berlin, we did the NFT version of Einstein on the Beach as a one of one. So that was for me when it came full circle. But along the way, 30 years or 40 years in between, um, I kind of shifted into technology and entrepreneurship and, and finance from a startup perspective and as a venture capitalist, um, just because I felt that at least at the time in the mid nineties or early nineties, like there was no, um, it was going to be really hard economically and, you know, to, to make a living in the theater. Yeah. Almost hard anytime I would, I would assume. Any arts, but theater in particular, because it's like, you can't collect theater, you know, it's, it's very much of a charity project. It's very hard. And if you do want to make money, you have to really be popular. And that wasn't the kind of theater I was interested in, yeah. but the, 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 the switch for me was when I was his archivist, this is like 93, 94. Um, he had all these different uh, historical artifacts, like videos and sketches and newspaper clippings um, and videos of performances and videos of rehearsals. And so telling his story, I felt like, oh, I could use these new technologies to tell a multimedia story. And yeah. so early 90s, I remember like getting a Mac Quadra and like doing early like um i think um what's the video called uh, um quick time had just come out for macintosh and so and you had cd-roms you didn't have the internet yet right um but you could use multi like multimedia tools like hypercard or supercard and there were publishers like voyager bob stein's company in new york that were doing really interesting interactive multimedia projects yeah and that good. was for me like a big shift away from physical performance and into digital. Yeah. And that then took me to Germany, um, to the Center for Media and Art Technology. Again, pretty artistic, but in a technology space. And then I came back to the US when I was like 25, in like 1995, and I started my first internet company. It was called Site Specific. So it clearly like resonated with the history of avant-garde performance because site-specific is like a, it's a cultural word. It's, you know, it's about an artwork that takes place in a very specific setting where the artwork and the setting are like uh, responding to each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yet that's what I call my website business because it was like website specific and it just took me into a, like a very commercial world for like 15, 20, 20 years of trying to build starting with an internet advertising agency and then going into other startups that I did at Flatiron Partners, um, just took me away from the arts and into um, startup land. Yeah, there's a um, funny story about Columbia. When I was a reporter at Bloomberg, in my, early in my career, I was on the energy team there and I was interviewing somebody about oil and uh, you know it was getting late in the day and I said, okay, I've got to go, I'm going to Columbia. And the guy was like, wow, Bloomberg is amazing. They're flying you down to Columbia to do reporting. 
And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm going to the university. I'm just going up to 125th Street. <laughs> but I wondered, what was it about performing that did you just not have a fear of it? Or did, what did you get out of it? Or did, did you always want to be in front of people? Or were you funny? Or what, what do you think um, drew you to it naturally as a child? Um, I think I, li I like the feeling of being on stage. You know, it was, it was like terrifying and exciting and, um, you know, it was kind of like, you know, like anything at that age, kind of primal, you know, it wasn't super, you know, it was sort of, I was like 10, like 10, probably 10 or 11 years old, 12 years old. And I started doing like, you know, regional theater. I was in like the Christmas Carol. It's a nice Jewish boy, Seth Goldstein from Newton. I was in the Christmas Carol and got to like, you have a Cockney accent. And I kind of liked it, you know. I liked, um, I liked that feeling. And then as I did more and more of it, I wanted to get more into, like, directing or writing or producing and off the stage because I wanted more control. Um, you know, I think to be a successful actor, you have to really um, be able to completely um, let go and and you know let go of if thinking or worrying how what what people think of you or how they see you right well, yeah you have i to think really that's what appeals go. to a lot of actors is being able to get out of your own skin and just take on right. a new persona and maybe leave whatever you've got behind for a little while at least i could never quite do that you know i think i was still self-conscious so you know i think in a way like a acting yeah it, it must have i mean on one level it just be like fun right like this is a thing i do it's not like i don't know did you or was it a pressure situation where you knew that like people expected things of you and that you could screw up publicly and it might you know embarrass you or was it just kind of like hey this is this is fun this is what i'm doing today i think it was um you know it's, it's elevated you know you're, you're going out in front of people and you're preparing for that and so I also think if I had to like analyze myself, like my parents had just gotten divorced and I was very precocious and I think I wanted to be seen, you know, and I think like, and I wanted some, I don't know, sense of control. Like I just felt, you know, I also wasn't, you know, if, if I was, if I could have hit, you know, 300, you know, 350 and play on the Red Sox, I would have been all in on baseball, but I couldn't, you know, so this was something that I got good, you know, you, early on you get good feedback about something, you keep doing it because you feel like you're doing a good job. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think it came naturally to me. Um, and then it just, it, again, it just, it, it morphed into something else. Yeah. And, and I assume your parents and family were sort of supportive here. It sounds like you have a very artistic family. Everybody was kind of- Yeah, my mom things. was like, she would, um, she would run, she was a hustler and an entrepreneur. And so she would set up concession stands in the theaters and sell Coke and sell, you know, soda and sell candy that she got at a discount store. Yeah. And I was always really like embarrassed of that. But in retrospect, I appreciate the hustle. Yeah. And then, so growing up in Newton and then you moved to New York for Columbia. Um, I mean, obviously, New York is is the magnet, right, on the East Coast. Is, was that a big change for you, or did it feel like just a, a normal, like a natural evolution on the next like stage you wanted to be on? Well, I think I always felt like Boston was in the shadow of New York. 
culturally, and it, you know it still is. Um, it is. Yeah, I mean everything um, is you know, a shadow of New York culturally. I true. think in this country, yeah. Um, and then I went for my senior year of high school. I went and studied theater at Interlochen Arts Academy in Michigan, and I remember like that was taking it to the next level and being serious. And I remember subscribing to the Village Voice that would be sent to me every week at in Michigan. I'm sure I was probably one of the only people at Interlock and if not, you know, Northern Michigan subscribing to the Village Voice. I don't know. But that's where I uh that's where I had my first kind of job at the Village Voice. I got a summer really? internship there. Yeah, in the year two thousand. And uh what section? For news. Yeah. I, I uh I was working for a guy named Wayne Barrett. I don't know if you remember him. He's a classic uh New York City journalist. He wrote for the voice forever. Uh he was like in like Tom Robbins, Wayne Barrett. Yeah. They were covering the city. Um, was Nat Hentoff there? Was he doing jazz yes. and music? Yeah. He's yeah. a legend. Totally. He was amazing. Yeah. And, um, and the theater uh, criticism was really good. Like it was just a really good, yeah. rich journal. And it was before the internet. So it's like all we had. Yeah. I mean, you used to, you man, you pick one of those up. It was like a, like a little mini phone book, you know, it was yep. big. Yeah. Michael Musto was there doing his thing. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that was, that was a, a really, interesting I found an time. apartment once on the back, on the back. It said like roommate finders. Mm -hmm. I think it was like yellow or I forget what the color was, but I found a, <laughs> I uh, remember either. I found yeah, an apartment. Had, I yeah. They had tons of classified ads. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. There was, a, there was no Airbnb. There was no Craigslist back then. Yeah. And the, the voice office, they had a smoking room. That's how old school it was. Like you, <laughs> there was this room in the middle of like kind of the newsroom where you could go in and close the doors and people would smoke cigarettes in there still. So that was, <laughs> it was a good time. And then, so, okay. So then you sort of shift. But, and well, so I wanted to be in New York, right? Like it was clear yeah. to me that no matter what, all roads led through New York City. Mm -hmm. I, I was going to apply to Columbia and New York and NYU. I got into Columbia, fortunately, and I went to Columbia and... That was my perch on the world for those four years and definitely um, got me cultured. You know, like it's one thing about reading about, you know, art or whatever. And there's another thing being in New York or being in a major city and being able to, you know, explore not just the museums and the performances, but everything in between. And so that was formative for me, um, you know, on multiple levels. I was there yeah, for almost I mean, 20 years. You could. Almost for just the cost of a metro card, you can be doing so, so much amazing things in New York City on any given day. Um, and you mentioned that you kind of started shifting from art in the real world to art and more in the digital space and into like mm -hmm. uh, CD, you know, CD-ROMs and all that stuff. Um, did you do that purposefully? Did it just happen, or did you see that the internet and like digital, you know, the computerized, um, you know, representations of art and digital art were kind of on the cusp? No, there was no like meta narrative. It was more like I was doing like multimedia CD-ROM, like making kind of like digital like guidebooks, as it were, like with product, you know, just like dragging and dropping, making like. Um, little programs. It didn't require a lot of programming on my behalf. It was kind of like drag and drop. Um, and then, but it was it was local. It was like you had to have a disc. Like literally, made lots of you know CD ROMs and you sent them out. And it was you know it's definitely a step forward in terms of functionality, in terms of interactivity. You couldn't do that on the page, right? You couldn't do that 
um, you know, you could only you could do it on the computer, but the computers weren't networked; they weren't linked across the internet. So you had to, you know, you need a physical disc or a CD-ROM to 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 use the program, just like any kind of video game cartridge. Um, but having done that, the timing was such that you know, come early '95 or late '94, I remember using Pipeline, James Gleick's, um BBS service, and you know, proto internet service. There was um, a Booklink, which I think was AOL. Right there was like you know a bunch of Gopher. Like there was like before Mosaic came out, there were all these different like hodgepodge, you know, um, interactive services that were popping up, and this notion of building a website. And because of what I'd been doing with CD-ROMs and multimedia with artists, I was just like ready. I was doing it already, and it was an easy transition for me. And I was working with a group of people, um, you know, for whom it was, you know, it wasn't a big, like they were all young and they weren't doing, they weren't in traditional jobs. They weren't in finance or advertising. They were just a bunch of young 20-somethings who were digital producers before the internet. Yeah, you seem to have an amazing knack for timing. And we'll get onto that a little bit later when when we talk about bright moments and, and the NFT kind of craze that happened. But um, so... And then I'm, I'm curious because to jump ahead just a little bit, but your role at Flatiron Partners, where you were a portfolio manager, seems quite a left turn from all of what we've just been discussing. So how do you how do you go from CD-ROMs and and wanting to design websites into working for you know a very large influential asset manager in New York City? So I started this web agency called Site Specific. And it kind of blew up in its own little way um, from middle of 1995. And then we got acquired in, in, in 1997 by CKS Group. But it was like the inflection point of Web 1. Like mm -hmm. 95 through 97 was like OG. And then like 99, 2000 is when the MBAs came in and then the bubble burst. And then it kind of scaled again. But I was early and I had an exit. And it, you know, it was. I think it was 15 million bucks and there was some stock and it was like it was it was a lot because none of us had any money and there was no precedent of any kind of technology or technology exit happening outside of Silicon Valley and we were in New York City. Um, and so I think we felt like we were on the cusp of something and then Fred and Jerry had just started Flatiron. Um, they hadn't even really associated with Chase Capital Partners yet so they weren't an asset manager. Jerry was a, a cowboy, you know, um, a publishing deal maker who went to CMGI after after being at CMP, right? So he came out of like publishing Jerry and early. Is Jerry who? Jerry Colonna right. had like and then um, Fred or some is the other and then Fred Wilson had been Fred at Wilson. Euclid, which is a classic, you know, tech venture capital firm in New York, and he got the bug and he thought the internet was going to be be big and he jumped in, and I just joined them as an EIR after I sold my company. And I was their first entrepreneur in residence. And this was 1998. And I was like, whoa, like I was calling it pervasive computing. Like this is going to be big. Like internet's going to move into our phones. Internet's going to move into our devices. Internet's not going to stay on the desktop. Hmm. And it looks obvious in retrospect, it's like, duh. But at the time it wasn't obvious. And so I built you know, quote unquote, a portfolio by finding like five or 10 companies to invest in around this thesis. 
yeah super early yeah you, but you one were of right, them was you were really early yeah yeah and one of them was cosmo if you remember k-o-z-m-o which kind of was like the poster child for a dot-com bubble but it also was the first service to deliver ice cream and dvds within an hour oh wow and you would go onto the cosmo.com website in new york city and you could order a bunch you know from a bunch of different dvds and this is before anybody was streaming and before netflix actually um, they had a library weed too because that sounds like nope, no weed it was uh two kids out of nyu just started it um and it blew up and um it was every you know all of it with with within an hour and you had yeah. de bicycle delivery guys waiting in the in the kind of little mini factory or little kind of loading center right by nyu i think it was like right around washington square park and then I remember going and visiting the company and seeing an order come out of the printer and then someone going to the freezer, grabbing an ice cream, grabbing the DVD and putting it on a scooter and driving away. Wow. And if you think about it, like that is DoorDash. That is yeah. Uber Eats. Like, like we've, we've, we've come to take those kinds of services for granted. Yeah, I've been saying this recently. Like Pets.com exists today. It's just called something different. It was way too early. Or it's know? called a, a bunch of different things. I mean that yeah. those that demand fractures into lots of suppliers, and I think that's what we're seeing. It's just you know the internet is it's so it is pervasive, and so that was my pitch to Fred and Jerry like, hey, let's build a practice around this. Yeah. It was early, and then the bubble burst. So that was that was tricky. How much uh, were we you had a couple of at, at the most? I think we you know we were probably a hundred million dollars. It's a lot, you know, in terms of like. I remember we put, you know, we led around to put twenty million dollars into Cosmo at a fifty million dollar pre money valuation, of which we took twelve out of the twenty, and partnered with a couple different firms for the rest. And it was I was a hero. I was like, it was the hottest deal to get into, in New York and the internet. And then within a year, Amazon and Kleiner Perkins both invested at a nine hundred million dollar valuation. Oh wow! So it was all on paper, and. I was a genius venture capitalist, best one ever, you know, rising star. And then March 2000 hit and it just went, eh. you know, like it just, all the air came out of the bubble. I think the sound was more like, I remember. So for me, the moment was um, we had a, a, a banker chosen for Cosmo to take it public. And I think it wasn't DF, it may have been DFG, DL, DLJ or DFJ. Um, DLJ. I don't know. And it was, you know, every, every one of these banks had an internet analyst yeah. and the internet analyst job was to tell you how much you're going to be worth when you go public. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Cosmo is going to be worth $5 billion. And I was remembering my mind, like how many shares I was going to have. And then I just don't remember the rest. It just was, a, it, it just, it just started, it was just the whole thing bled out over like a year. Yeah. And then it started again, you know, then it started with Web 2 in 2003, 2004. And that was another cycle and yeah, another set of companies that I got involved with. Real quickly, you you also got involved with um, Turntable. Turntable, yeah, that was yeah. later. And then, so was that, was music something that was always sort of in the background for you and then you had a chance to, to dive into it or, or how did that um, come along? 
So there's a, so a couple companies in, but there's a really important company I started in 2003, 2004 called um, Majestic Research. And that was the closest I've ever gotten to finance world because we, we, we generated investment research and sold it to hedge funds. Okay. Um, and we got the investment research data from the internet. So all these hedge funds like Lone Pine and Tudor and, um, and Glenview were popping up and suddenly they were like five, $10 billion hedge funds. And they were investing in internet companies like eBay and Amazon and Travelocity at the time. And they didn't have any good information to trade on because up until then, you know, like there was no like regulation fair disclosure was happening, which you remember from the, from, from Bloomberg, like companies couldn't whisper anything to the CFO, you know, um, you know, the CFO couldn't say anything to the investor on the golf course. Otherwise they go to jail and Grubman got in trouble and, and, and Spitzer came after Henry Blodgett. And so we built this company that used the internet as a Oracle for understanding how businesses and consumers were behaving. And that was really successful. And we sold it to investor technology group, but that was for me a couple of years of really getting close to the world of finance and hedge funds and and mutual funds and prime brokers and sell side and buy side. So I kind of developed a a sense of of of, of how markets operate from that. Um, I invested. I was a first angel investor in Delicious, which was one of the first kind of Web two social media companies. Um, it was Delicious. Was it kind of invented the idea of tagging content with hashtags? Um, it, it happened at the same time as Flickr. Um, and then moved to California, um, in 2007. And that's when I got more involved as an angel investor. And I, um, helped to co-found Turntable in the social music space. Yeah. And then all the while, like, so then we're just about up to the financial crisis and and what was going to happen in 2008. Uh, you were up in in Northern California. Is that right? Yeah. I was in Marin. Yeah. And. What did that, how did that affect your businesses and what your outlook was at that time um, in California? Did you want to like get back to New York or what were you thinking uh, at that point in your career? Um, I had, to, you know, two boys and my, my kids were seven and five, you know, when we moved to California or eight and five. And so, you know, I think Northern California just made a lot more sense than New York in terms of raising kids and raising boys. Um, and I had been, uh, I just started in New York, um, like an online mortgage lead marketplace with Lou Rainieri called Roots, called uh, Root Market, and got to spend a lot of time with him, understanding the history of like the mortgage industry and um, understanding liquidity, understanding fungibility, like a lot of themes that I think have carried forward into the kind of tokenomics that I'm dealing with now with Bright Moments. I learned a lot from understanding um, how Wall Street operates and operated and how he, in particular, Rainieri, built the, you know, was the first one to collateralize loans mm-hmm. and, and, and create mortgage-backed securities, which is, you know, trillions of dollars Huge. in terms yeah, of as an industry. An yeah. um, and a legendary Wall Street figure who would throw telephones at people and brutal, you know, pre-woke era him and Giuliani and Alphonse D'Amato, like all those characters, yeah, you know, back in, you know, and Trump back, back in New York in the, I guess the, uh, the eighties. 
Yeah. Uh, going back to the Village Voice, I had a chair thrown at me by Wayne Barrett one time. So yeah, really, I, I know that. I know that okay. vibe. Um, and so with Rainieri, did you like? So you said you're just you were doing that right up uh, into 2008, right? Yeah, um, right, right into 2006, you, 2007, when the mortgage market started to collapse. Yeah, did he see it coming, or did you guys have any sense of it, or what? What was the what was it like at that point? I think in re in retrospect, he knew exactly what was happening, which is um, uh, thin credit files. Like people were just getting you know approvals so easily. Um, and so I think the writing was on the wall. You know, I was trying to build a, I thought that, that it still makes sense, is that the, when someone is going online and looking to purchase a mortgage, um, the, all a mortgage is is a promise to pay, right? A mortgage is literally you, Matt, you agree over the next 20 years to pay $3,000 a month or whatever it is, and it's an annuity. And if you're credit worthy and I trust you, I can put you together with, you know, 10,000 or 1,000 other people like you, and that becomes a bond, right? It's a stream of future income, uh, but fundamentally it's just based on people's willingness to pay. And, and some people are more likely to go to not pay than others or go bankrupt and some ethnicities right like you know certain people who have less money will not default you know other people that may have a lot of money don't care about their reputation or whatever there's different social norms and they may default and so there's all those nuances and i thought well you can kind of move that upstream and if, if you're searching for a mortgage i probably can learn enough about you on the internet that you're worth something the, the value of a lead, like in terms of lead generation. The idea is we could kind of, could you collateralize lead generations um, in the same way he collateralized, you know, mortgages. Yeah. So it's a good idea. Yeah. But that probably just got washed away with the crisis. True. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're kind of through the crisis. And then um, did you, do you remember encountering Bitcoin for the first time or, or when crypto came across? So after the crisis, um, I just happened to come across a really great entrepreneur, a guy named Billy Chasen, who started something called Sticky Bits, which was a like a barcode scanning app where you could scan a barcode on a phone and leave a message and put that barcode somewhere. And then someone that scans it, who had the app, could read the message. So super clever entrepreneur. I've known him for a while. And he's the one that had the idea for Turntable. And so I spent a couple years like going down that rabbit hole of online music and thinking about like, and this was before Spotify really took over. But back in, you know, um, SoundCloud, um, what was the other one? Songs. Uh, um, there was, you know, there's a lot of interesting music services that were popping up. Um, Radio FM, that was earlier. But, um, Anyway, you know, the turntable had a moment because it, it solved a really interesting social need, which is people want to listen to music together. Yeah. And Spotify doesn't really let you do that. So we've kind of lost that. But anyway, I learned firsthand about like dealing with license holders, like labels, and how it's very hard to build a business when like you start by giving 80% of your revenue away. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think... Although in a way, at bright moments, we give away 
a lot of revenue to artists. So maybe it is similar. Yeah. And it's interesting how you say that Spotify doesn't allow you to share, you know, like, or listen together. Um, and then I think Web3 and music, the, the way they're converging right now is really interesting. We're, we're doing a lot of reporting on that at Essential about how, you know, artists are kind of taking more, much more control of musicians and are really finding ways to interact and bond with their audience kind of directly. So I, I, I think that's, that's giving me hope um, because I think a lot of these, a lot of these folks realize that, you know, that's their real core constituency is their, their super fan, you know, they're like the, the people that really want to be um, part of the, of the music. And so I guess we should fast forward here to the pandemic, I guess, because that was a, a pivotal moment um, in your life. Uh, and, and you had, just moved to Venice uh, Beach, right, uh, in L.A. From, from Northern California at that point? Yeah, in the middle of 2020, Christy and I moved to, um, like, in July or August of 2020, we moved from, she was in North Beach, I was in Marin. We had been dating a couple years. Both of our kids went away to college. And um, we were just, you just bored in the pandemic, bored of the Bay Area. And so we were like, okay, let's go. We were going to go to New York, but then the pandemic broke out even worse early on in New York City. So we decided to come to Venice Beach. I thought the, the light would be really like conducive to her painting and be good creative light. And it seemed like a fresh start. And so we ended up here. Um, and that kind of brought us into living in Venice Beach and being quarantined with a lot of creative people that otherwise we probably wouldn't have met because they would have been at work or they would have been traveling. And so just in our neighborhood of, you know, four by four blocks, um, we had a really interesting community right when um, this kind of this, this last cycle of crypto started to expand again. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that the lockdown kind of froze everyone in place. Otherwise, everybody would have been on their own way, you know, on their own journey and might not have crossed paths with half of them. Um, and then, so you had been, um, had you always been a, a photographer or had you taken it up? Because I know that's sort of the path that you, into NFTs yourself was the, the, the photography you were doing. Um, in I, so I had always, I had spent a year, like 2017, I was in San Francisco and I had a blockchain community center that I was building called Node. And so I was very aware 2014 or so after Turntable, what was happening with blockchain and Ethereum in particular, I wasn't actively, I mean, I owned some ETH and some Bitcoin as of 2013, but never, you know, wasn't a maxi, wasn't, you know, religious about it, wasn't a zealot. Super curious about Ethereum. I saw CryptoKitties. I, can't, I didn't quite know what to do with them. I didn't, I didn't see CryptoPunks, obviously. Otherwise, I would have had some. Um, but was interested in building a community center in San Francisco for this class of founders and um, in crypto travelers, like nomads. And I thought, oh, why don't we have a kind of a co-working space for people that are involved in the blockchain in San Francisco and then expand it to other places. So I had a seed of an idea um, this is when WeWork was blowing up, obviously. Um, and then separately in San Francisco, I was also painting a lot. And I had an art studio called Water Studios, and I was painting just as an outlet for me because I love to paint. Um, and that, I think that's something I've been doing in the background while I was starting and dealing with all these companies is I would just 
um, using oil paint. And I was always embarrassed because my mother and my brother were so much better than I was. I was just painting, abstract painting, you know, for years. And yeah. I wanted to take it take it you seriously. a little while to get out from under their shadow and just feel comfortable painting or? Well, I never, it was never like, I was in the shadows because it was a hobby, you know, and, and, but I, but I've been doing it for years and I felt really good about it. And I wanted to see what it would be like if I took and did it full time as a focus, as opposed to something I did on the weekends or at night. So for six months I painted every single day and it was great. Um, and then separately I had this blockchain community center and then neither one of those was really, it was really worked out, you know, it was, became a big business for me. It wasn't like I was suddenly selling paintings or that we were expanding the blockchain or expanding node. Um, so I was ready to, to move. And mm -hmm. I felt like that was shifting into Venice beach. I was working on a privacy startup called Spartacus at the time. And I'd raised some money for that before the pandemic. And we were selling privacy services to help people delete their data from the internet and, and, and um, credit rating and um, kind of do, you know, it was called initially it was the idea was being a data fiduciary for people is helping people manage, protect, and even monetize their data themselves, as opposed to the companies that are doing it to them. Really good idea, something I believe strongly in, but not a great business. People aren't willing to pay for it at scale and the pandemic hit and it was a struggle and I was just done. I was done doing startups. I was done raising money. I was done as an entrepreneur. Um, when I moved to Venice Beach. So I was really trying to detach from anything. And the only thing that, one of the things that I was excited about was I got a new camera, a new, so like a, so, you know, Sony, now I have a long lens, but a, yeah. um, you know, and I'd always been a gear freak and I'd always go out and I just did it more seriously. And, and it kind of got me through a couple of months of the pandemic, going out to the sunset and taking pictures. And, um, and then manipulating them and, and playing with them and just geeking out about all of the, all the stuff I was doing. Um, and, you know, this was at the same time that I was collecting NBA Top Shot moments. Um, and I was super, I was much more engaged with the stock market in terms of meme stocks, not like GameStop, but just like that, you know, SPACs and everything that was going on in 2020 or 2019 you know, kind of collided with me taking pictures on the beach at night and, you know, at sunset at Venice Beach, um, turned into, okay, like something happened with an NFT. Right. And then and, we're back to Fred Wilson, right? He mm -hmm. was the one who introduced you to the idea of like, oh, these, photo these photographs are amazing. Have you thought about, you know, releasing them as NFTs? And I think Fred was, you know, he's a Venice resident as well, although he spends, doesn't spend a lot of time here. Um, and I made these like fun videos using again using AI, you know, before Dali or Midjourney or Stable Diffusion, but um, kind of taking these photos that I had taken and turning them into like these synthetic videos. Yeah. And I showed it to him, and he's like, "Oh, you should mint those as NFTs on Foundation or Super Rare." And I didn't. I knew somebody that was connected with the CEO of Foundation. I didn't know anybody at Super Rare, so I reached out to the CEO of Foundation, Kayvon, when they were just starting to accept artists on the platform. This was in January of 2021, January, February, 2021. And um, 
And then I got an invite and I posted my first NFT and I sold it. And there was a big light bulb for me. And I was like, fuck, this is something's happening here. Cause I'd heard about NFTs before, but now it was happening again. And I think in technology markets in general, like a lot of things happen once and don't happen again. But if they happen two times, they're probably going to happen three, four, five. And so I felt that pretty strongly. And I went hard after the opportunity beyond just me as an artist. I thought, fuck, like this could be just a way to bring people together. You know, like why not have an NFT gallery and, and, and put NFTs on screens and have people come and check it out and buy them because I don't need permission. Yeah. It just felt like a really powerful unlock. And, and was, so that, and that's the genesis of Bright Moments, the, the original gallery in Venice, which is right down on Seward uh, Avenue. On Windward, yeah. Like, or sorry, Windward, um, right in the heart of, of Venice. And so, and then I think the idea that sort of took on a life of its own that maybe you didn't realize at first was this idea of crypto Venetians, which were mm -hmm. NFTs, uh, you know. That were free. That was the key. Yes. Is, yes, is it the only thing, the only the thing that took off, I mean, yeah, I think it was smart to make an NFT gallery and all that, but what really um, achieved the sort of uh, key notion of product market fit was how are we going to, you know, how are we going to bring people to this NFT gallery other than when we have an opening at night once a week? Yeah. I know. Yeah. Let's give away NFTs to people that come in and, and they can only get the NFT if they're there in person. So it's kind of yeah. like a a way of uh, driving foot traffic and knowing that people like things that are free. I didn't know, you know, we were worried that people might not pay the gas because the gas prices were $30, $40, you know? Mm. So fortunately, just through some weird supply demand hocus pocus on, you know, the fact that Artblocks was a really important platform, there were really serious collectors and the collectors couldn't travel to Venice created this automatic like secondary market for these randos that were coming through Venice Beach and minting crypto Venetians and then putting them on OpenSea and seeing that there were bids for five hundred, a thousand dollars for an NFT that they just got for free. For free, yeah. And it also um strikes me that maybe you didn't realize what an emotional experience this would be for people like that like did you did you have a sense of that or like did, is that something you just learned by seeing how people reacted when they would come to the gallery because they didn't know what they were getting right and that's the sort of big kind of re reveal and i think that so i, I think the, there is um i mean this sort of this sort of beckons back to crypto punks right where you know like fundamentally what you know what is unique about cryptopunks is they're randomly generated right they're randomly generated pixel art and there's 10,000 of them and there's only 10,000 and they weren't designed top down they were they were they were designed bottom up right there was no hand of an artist that was you know making each one at least so I'm aware yeah. right and you can prove on chain yeah, that they were generated randomly, and, right? Cool. And that's so that's that was in in my in my in my mind all the way through this. And I think what happened, which I don't, I didn't expect, and I think was a surprise to us, was that with art blocks, you could have a platform that would generate them on the fly, 
mm-hmm. that it wasn't like we had to generate, you know, that they could be generated one one at a time and that the person minting the crypto Venetians wouldn't know what they're going to get and nobody would know what they were going to get. It was truly random. And the minute you introduce random into the world, people are interested. It's like cult, a culture forms around randomness. Gambling, good example. Like we sit around there and we're watching the roulette wheel or we're watching lotto. Live sports. Whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. I mean, I'd argue live sports is not so random. But like true, like random. But you don't know what's you know? going to happen. I mean, that's... You know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. But I mean, like a roulette wheel, like fundamentally is random. And yet yeah. people like are curious to know who's going to win, who's going to lose. Um, and so there's just some of that baked into this. That it was, it was natural. It was like more interesting than otherwise because this PFP, this NFT that you're about to receive nobody knows what it's going to be and some things are rarer than others right when you introduce you know variable random rewards i guess this whole book's written about it you know it, it's addictive and i don't you, i don't mean in a bad in a, in a bad way i just mean it's, it's very right. compelling well, you, and then you took it to a whole new level when I, I came to see you in new york when tyler hobbs had his show in complete control um, at your new york gallery um because here Tyler didn't even know what his art was going to be until the unveiling, you know, which was, I found really compelling. And, uh, so people had bid on them and then they'd unveil, you know, okay, here's, here's your NFT. And and Tyler would be seeing it for the first time. And then he was up there on, you know, he's had the microphone and he'd be like, oh, wow, this is, this one's cool. It's got this element and that element. And that, that was something that really, uh, stuck with me, um, in that event also known as the super spreader event because i think everyone of us got covid but okay let's not i just wanted to go back one second to venice do do you want to try to give a three minute overview of what happened with crypto venetians and how that project got kind of hijacked and sort of i think you you wrote about it pretty extensively but net net is um we the origin the origin of crypto venetians um was um in the form of 10 million ERC-20 tokens called BRT. Mm-hmm. And I minted those out of my wallet in March of 2021, made t- 10 million BRT tokens and spread them out to our team. Uh, and the team was people that I met in Venice that I thought could help with the gallery. There is no monetary value to the tokens. We didn't sell them, but they were a way for people to participate in the project. Um, and when I started, I probably gave 20 different people these tokens, um, and it entitled all of us to be able to vote on certain things. And it became the foundation for all the tokens of the project. But long story short, when we were thinking about how to, uh, token or or geofence the crypto Venetian minting so that when you, so that you had to be there to mint, you couldn't mint remotely. The only thing we could, the the best idea we had was for you, you had to come to the gallery and then physically one of us from the iPad or their phone would transfer to you 10 BRT tokens that you could then use there and only there to mint a crypto Venetian on art blocks. 
And that was the mechanic. And it worked, which is like, there, you know, people would be really interested in minting a crypto Venetian, but there was no way of getting this token because it was it existed in our wallets. We gave it to somebody who walked in and then they they burned it by sending it to Artblocks as a token to pay for to the get mint. the NFT. Yeah. And it worked. Um, and we minted 691. And then one night, one of those 20 people who we entrusted with thousands of BRT uh, took it upon himself to mint out all the remaining 309 crypto Venetians that hadn't been minted yet. And at that moment, on August 10th, 2021, you know, the, the, the floor price of a crypto Venetian was like four ETH and ETH was at $3,000. So it was like 12,000 or $15,000. We were giving out these things to people for free who had signed up first come first serve. And, um, it, it was a, it was a, tra a traumatic event at the time. You remember it was a formative event. Um, a lot of lessons learned, but it also was part of our origin story of how we started the project and brings up all sorts of... remember for the story, yeah. you said, you know, about giving away the crypto Venetians, you're like, it's like a car dealership giving away 15 free cars a day, you know? Right. And it was like crazy. Um, is there any update on that with, with anything that, that, that happened with uh, that person or, or anything uh, law enforcement wise or anything like that? No real update. Um, I mean, I think we've moved on. on. Yeah, you know, we 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 got like two hundred and eighty of the um, three hundred and ten. I think two hundred eighty, two hundred forty of the three hundred and ten crypto Venetians got recovered, returned, okay. and we redistributed them to the community. And so, now, let's talk about the big picture here. The, Venice was the first; um, it was the the launching pad for this effort that you've been in underway ever since where there'll be 10 cities around the world where you go and you do the same sort of thing. I've, I've mentioned New York, then you went to London, you went to Berlin, uh, you went to Mexico City, and now I think Tokyo is next. Tokyo. And yeah. And so the idea here is at the end of the day, and you'll, you'll mint a thousand, um, you know, NFT PFPs in each of those cities, you'll have 10,000 at the end of the day, and that will be the Bright Moments DAO, right? Where Correct. like those are the members of the Bright Moments DAO will be the people who hold these these NFTs. Can you tell just explain for, for listeners like what what's the grand vision here and, and how is it going? It's going really well. Um on multiple levels. I mean, I think we are surviving a pretty significant market correction if you haven't noticed right like it's pretty bearish out I think there we've noticed um but we're doing really well like we're um you know we we generate you know when we we do a thousand crypto citizens in every city to get to ten thousand we sell mint passes for a third of them to fund each city so we're about to sell um our crypto to uh tokens are crypto tokyo golden uh, um uh, golden tokens for tokyo that will entitle holders to be able to mint a crypto tokyoite and purchase generative art we have like 30 some odd artists lined up for tokyo all of whom will be doing live minting we give 70 percent of the revenue to the artist um so we become a really um generous powerful um platform for 
generative artists and other NFT artists to do IRL shows around the world. You know, I think we were fortunate to focus on generative art in general and art blocks in particular um, because it has held up remarkably well against the backdrop of other NFTs or PFPs or DeFi or crypto in general, right? Like I think um, the only, you know, one of the only really strong um, uh, st strong areas um, in crypto right now is is generative art. NFTs, both Ethereum yeah. and Tezos, they seem to be holding their own because they have become stores of value. Um, so that's how we're doing. And the team is good and the team is growing and we have a community um, across London, across Berlin, across Mexico, across New York and Venice and soon Tokyo. Um, and that's great. And we're on-chain governed as a DAO and we pay each other in Ethereum and it's a really interesting experiment in art and capitalism. In terms of the big vision, I think the plan is to finish, to, to complete this journey of 10,000 crypto citizens and a lot of great art along the way. Most of what we do with artists is in the form of long format generative art editions of 100. And we've done that on art blocks. We're doing that on FX hash. Um, we'll be introducing uh, some AI art uh, exhibitions uh, in Tokyo that'll be unique and will be really interesting just considering the growth of, of some of these AI models. Um, but our goal and the vision is to complete, you know, Tokyo is a seventh city. Then we have three more cities. I think September will be South America. It could be a place like Buenos Aires uh, or Rio. Um, December will be city number nine. I think that'll be in the Mideast. It could be Istanbul, it could be Dubai, it could be Cairo, it could be, um, who knows. Um, and then the 10th city will be Venice, Italy. I think that's pretty strict. We really cool. want to end in Venice and say we can go from Venice to Venice right. and, and right. kind of complete the project during the Biennale in Venice. And then we will have 10 different sub-DAOs, each with their own multi-sig wallet at the end of this. And they should have some shared resources in terms of their expertise and the brand. And we build our own software to do the minting and the revealing. Um, and we just announced uh, a tighter relationship with Artblocks, where we're going to be doing shows with them that blend both off online and offline experiences. The first one will be with MP Cause uh, next month where there'll be a Dutch auction on art blocks um, for 500 mints. Each mint will come with one uh, city trait. And so when you mint online, it might have a New York trait or an LA trait or a Berlin trait. And based on that trait, you can bring that NFT to that gallery a few weeks later and mint a follow-up diptych. So kind of blending the online mint and the offline experience but doing it in a way that's on chain. Um, I also so, saw that you just did a deal with Samsung where they're going to... Um... Yeah, to be featured on their TVs because they have an art store. And when you turn on the TVs these days, if you're connected, it kind of has clip art. You know, it has different um, screensavers you can download and you can use and we're featured. Uh, we're, our, Me our Mexico City collection is featured on Samsung screens now. Yeah, that's cool. And they've been a good partner. I, I, yeah. 
I mentioned earlier that you, you have really great timing. Um, and I think everything really came together, like the pandemic actually, you know, was a positive force for you in a lot of ways for, for getting bright moments, you know, the, the genesis of it and the, the ideas I think around it um, might not have happened without that external force. But, and as we've been talking, you know, we're in a pretty bad bear market. I think we're maybe starting to see some green shoots recently, but where do you see NFTs going from here? Um, I know obviously the generative art, uh, kind of subcategory is, is big and, and it's, it's it's i just consider it art it's just a different slightly different medium um and obviously art is not going away but do you feel like that nfts with utility are gonna like start coming into the fore or do you see other applications of the technology that um could expand you know how they're used um by, by folks and yes to all that I think they're 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 really. I mean, if you think about comparing an NFT to a stock or a bond um, or a file format like a JPEG, um, I'm trying to think like what what other like assets do we value? Like it has it has so much more built-in functionality, right? NFTs can do so many things. They can refer to so many different. Uh, sensors and, and data sources they can change over time based on how you interact with them or whether you transfer them like there's a lot of um, subtleties and modalities to nfts that are way bigger than anything we're doing right now and they'll continue to expand across art across fashion across finance across real estate across government across education like they're really uh, interesting useful machines to process information and process rights and process privileges and, and process decisions and process um, value, right? Um, at the same time, you know, most, you know, a lot of where I'm focused is on like regionally, like Japan is ready for NFTs in a, in a, in a really fundamental way um, that's unique, that hasn't happened before, that, you know, all the preparation we're doing and the planning and the research we're doing is suggesting that um, you know Japan got burned by Kraken, um, mm -hmm. or my, no, I'm sorry, but it got burned by Mount Gox, um, not Kraken, and um, uh, and reeled from it, and they kind of missed out on the last hype cycle that we went through last year or the last eighteen months, in the United States. So they're not burned by FTX and SBF, right? They don't have loss aversion issues. Right, they're very bullish on NFTs, crypto, DAOs, and super progressive, and um, in a way that is not happening here in the states. I think the states were going through a reaction to a lot of speculative greed that happens in any emerging market, and I think things will get you know the NFT market and the NFT art market um, will become you know bigger and bigger in the United States, but it might pause while it takes off in other places like Asia. So I think just like the internet didn't happen everywhere at once, it, it grows different functions and different use cases grow in different regions based on different cultures and different economies. And I think we're seeing that. And so I think there's a lot of growth. Um, you know, when we, we felt it when we went into Berlin, we were early. I think we'll be right on time in Tokyo to really galvanize a lot of interest around this. Yeah, I want to ask you that. I'm sure you've had um, 
countless amazing experiences in the different cities you've been in, but could you just, what, what are a couple that stand out to you? Um, things that maybe surprised you or, or you didn't expect or just moments that, you know, bright moments, like what, what are some of your bright moments from, from some of these cities for the last year or so that you've been uh, out? There's been a lot of them. Um, honestly, every, every city is a new, um, it's a new performance. It's a new um, world. You know, I think Berlin was really eye-opening for a lot of us because we had an 80,000-square-foot facility called Kraftwerk in the middle of Kreuzberg, legendary location that otherwise would not be available to us, that we happened to come mid-pandemic and offer, you know, a lot of... We had a lot of ETH, and it was worth, we had, it was worth a lot of dollars, and we were able to rent this amazing space and put on an amazing show 10 different nights and i remember viscerally what it felt like to see that literally 2000 people there to watch nfts getting minted and performed um and then london was a very different experience it was much more um about the service and about the uh, intimacy and about the relationship you can have with somebody when you mint. It wasn't shock and awe. It wasn't like Blade Runner the way Berlin was. And then Mexico was really special because it was so communal and there's food and there was tequila and, and, and mezcal and um, Aztec dancers and um, different chambers around a courtyard where you were minting your art and it felt very native to mexico and i think that's you know i think coming out of the pandemic i know i i was i was worried that we i would never travel again like there's this feeling of the world gets shut down and so suddenly you think okay well what are the bucket list places that if and when the world opens up again that are going to be the top of my list to see and experience before i die and I think that's what Bright Moments' journey is about. Yeah, that's really interesting, too, that not only have you made it emotional come and be in person when they do their minting and, and they have that, you know, kind of reveal and it's exciting. And But you've also, like you're saying, you're making it regional and you're making it authentic to different places around the world where it's sort of like their own culture or their own vibe is, is absorbed and sort of refracted back into the, the ceremony and the pomp. And this, it's just, that's really, that's really amazing. It is, it's a, it is a world tour. We joke that we was yeah. like, Oh, it's like around the world in 80 days, but around the world in 10,000 NFTs. Like there's this sense of, um, I hope a pandemic is a once in a lifetime experience. Like I don't want to go through that again. And I think even if we do, we'll know, you know, we'll, we'll we won't be as surprised because we've just gone through it. But it was so. Um, I mean, obviously, nine eleven affected us um, deeply, um, but it didn't change our way of life the way the pandemic did. And and so I think like there's this sense of the world shut down, it went to zero, everything stopped. And we, Bright Moments, can be this community that has this new magic, you know, it's not the printing press, it's not the torch, but it's important, you know, it's a new tool that was never available to civilization, and we're taking it around the world 
and 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 connecting everybody. And it's it's not a telephone, it's not a Morse code, it's not an airplane, but it's a really interesting invention that when you combine with a certain kind of art and culture, is just something that I feel, you know, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I try to remind and, and tell people that I'm working with who may not have had as much experience as I have to appreciate it because it doesn't come around very often. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well said and a wonderful place to leave this. Um, Seth, thank you so much for all your time and your generosity and, and telling us your story. Um, just real quick, tell people where they can find you, where they can find Bright Moments if they want to get uh, more involved here. Uh, I am at Seth on Twitter because I signed up for my name in 2007. And wow. Bright Moments is brightmoments.io and uh, you can find all of our information there, but we're BRT Moments on Twitter. And, um, and when is the Tokyo? Uh, Tokyo is May 5th through 10th, so beginning okay. of May. But we have a lot of shows um, in Venice. And if you're and selling golden tickets, those go on sale soon for that? The golden tokens go on sale, I think, next week. And we've announced um, our Tokyo lineup um, of generative artists. And we're going to be announcing our AI collection uh, today. Yeah. And this, so we're recording on January 30th, just so everyone knows. Um, again, Seth, always a, a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for sharing with us. And, uh, Good luck in Tokyo and, and the rest of the, the world. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate you. Well, hey, that's it for another episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for joining us. Make sure to hit that subscribe button. Check us out on the web at decentral.io. We're on Twitter at Decentral Media. Our shows are produced by Matt Solon. The music is courtesy of Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. Thanks so much. Take care.